Welcome to Season 6 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Before we get started in this episode, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to all those of you that have subscribed, listened to and downloaded the podcast. It means the world to know that there are teachers across the globe that are finding these resources useful. So thank you. Today I have the great pleasure of introducing you to Mike Fauteur. He is a maths teacher, or math, depending on where you're listening to this from, and has been an administrator and served as an innovation leader in middle and high schools in America. Today Mike is the co-founder of an incredible organisation called Give Thanks. He co-created several edtech innovations that were designed to create more equitable learning. He believes that effective tools must be created with by and for students and educators. This organization aims to support students who are significantly behind and struggling to catch up by asking three key questions. What do you need to feel safe? What do you need to feel like you belong? And what do you need to feel like you can succeed? Mike was an incredible guest and it was a huge privilege to speak with him. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Hugely grateful. How are you going? Going all right. Thanks so much for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, it's a very different um, time of day over here. It's it's lunchtime, uh, uh, but I know it's getting on into the evening. Where Whereabouts are you phoning in from? Uh, just outside San Francisco, California. Amazing. Beautiful part of the world. Indeed, indeed. Feel lucky. Yeah, but you were saying that you were originally uh, born in Boston, and so uh, how's that? How does that compare with uh, San Francisco? How does that compare? Uh, a little more intense, a little mm-hmm. bit more traditional. Yeah. Um, I love it. It's home. It has yep. seasons. We only have uh, wildfire season, no rain season. We don't have many seasons out here in California, but uh, I love Boston. I miss it, but. California is very much home now. It's nice. nice. Uh, what is your drink of choice? Could be uh, caffeine related or alcoholic related? I had a good fortune to, to teach overseas in, in Italy. I taught at a, a school in Rome for a little while. Yeah. So just a, a like espresso. There's nothing like an espresso, particularly after lunch, just to, to get me going. And as a new dad, it's been oh. more appreciated. Fantastic. And do you have the term uh, hipsters over in San Francisco? We have, we have that term. We do. Do you, is would you say that uh, San Francisco has a good hipster coffee community? Ah, yes, it does. It is. uh, Yeah. It's very proud of its coffee culture. I would say. Yes. That would be be very similar uh, to Sydney. There's a whole range of pop-up cafes and a lot of distressed wood, uh, bench <laughs> on and, uh, and also some fedora uh, fedora hats which seem to make a uh, seem to make an appearance so apparently this is universal particularly the distressed wood yeah yeah that's right um, is there a book uh, that you have read uh, it could be um, in uh, professionally or personally that has caused you to, to stop and rethink a few things in your life to kill a mockingbird oh actually uh, and the reason oh. I bring it up I was just thinking about this the other day. It's one of the few books I've read maybe four more times and I've gone back to it at different phases or chapters in my life. 
I love that. And it's meant something different. And becoming a, a parent for the first time, I read it yeah. just with, with different eyes and it, it grabbed me in a different way. And it's also been a little more poignant recently, given that uh, a bunch of school districts, at least in the U.S., are, are starting to uh, be okay with that book even being read. So there's a lot of a lot of positive or associations I have with it, but also a lot of, of anxiety around that. And so it's, it's meant a lot to me uh, at different points in my life. And uh, I find myself continuing to go back to it. Wow. It, I, I love that you mentioned that book because it's especially meaningful for, um, uh, for me for a number of reasons. The first one is my wife and I uh, met in English class in uh, year, what you would say, grade 11. Uh, and mm. we were reading To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, my wife uh, is Indian, South African, uh, and uh, for me, it was the first time I'd actually um, naively even began to think about um, race relations and um, some of the um, incredibly uh, difficult challenges that people have had to overcome. And thirdly, uh, our first daughter is called Harper, uh, which is the obviously the author, Harper Lee, and we called her Harper because of the impact um, of of that book. And so it is hugely meaningful. And I love that uh, in Australia, at least it's um, almost mandatory reading uh, in high school. It's one of those books that is very closely aligned to uh, our syllabus. So uh, I love that you um, have had a similarly great experience with that book. It's a, it's a beautiful read. And I also, I've probably read it four or five times. And every time I read it, uh, it speaks something uh, different to me. So uh Especially, I think, when it comes to, like I said, my girls are the first um, quote unquote Aussies in our family. I was born overseas. My wife was born overseas. And they they don't look like your typical Aussies. They're not blonde hair, blue eyes. They're, they're mixed race girls that are half South African, half English. And somewhere the Aussie is in there as well. So, uh, yeah, hugely important book. Thank you for uh, thank you for bringing it up. Um, if you could have a dinner party uh, with anybody, uh, who would be there? Obviously, your uh, wonderful family do not count in the headcount. Um, but who would you who would you invite? Oh, that's a tough one. I it's interesting. The first name that popped to mind, uh, perhaps because I just saw her on TV. She was just receiving the I think it was the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, Simone Biles. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, amazing just remarkable person and I, I think because it intersects so much with my work at the moment which focuses on emotional health yeah. not only is she just the most accomplished gymnast at least um from from the states if not all perhaps all time her forthright engagement with with emotional health yeah. really really just just astounded me yeah. uh, and and uh, I just I'd love to sit down and, and hear what she has to say um, that she's, you know, performed at such an incredible level and to engage um, very transparently with such a often taboo issue Yeah, uh, that, that I think I could just listen to her share a whole lot about her experience for quite some time over there. Yeah. yeah. Would there be anybody else or is uh, Simone Biles enough? Just one seat at the table. Uh, you know, I, she's the first one that comes to mind. Yeah. I try and pre-think this one too much. And half the time I, I end up reaching back to, to people no longer with us just because yeah. my, my brain seems to go there. I, I think she would be uh, enough conversation to have over dinner, Simone Biles. I think it would be amazing to, to get to sit down and, and, and talk with her. And um, I am also uh, intrigued and amazed uh, by 
by her journey. Um, I saw the photo of her getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom and I thought, that is well-deserved, really well-deserved. Hands down. Um, what, was your, what was your upbringing like and what are you most grateful for uh, from your parents? My upbringing was joyful. I, I feel extremely fortunate. Uh, I was privileged in a lot of ways. Uh, and I, I grew up just outside Boston with my, my mom and dad and my two brothers. Uh, I have a twin. And um, it was a time where I got to be able to be a kid. And sometimes I see a lot of students I've taught, they don't always get that time. Mm. Um, and I had a host of experiences, particularly as it intersected school, I ended up going to, to public school, uh, K-8. I went to a parochial school, an all-boys Catholic high school okay. for high school. And that was a, a very, very different experience. Mm. And then when I started my career after going to university, I ended up teaching overseas in Hong Kong. And so I, I kept having this unconditional support and love, which I see as just the bedrock of, of my, my upbringing, uh, I feel fortunate for. And it supported me to keep putting my toe in the water to have these very, very different experiences. And I ended up growing a lot from these different culture shocks, um, which was good for me because um, I, didn't, I didn't fully get to embrace or become aware of mm. so much in the world, not just in my own country, but all over the world until yeah. I started stepping outside my comfort zone. Wow. I don't know that I would have done that had it not been through education and also with that, that family support growing up. Yeah. I think that's so important. I mean, I, I feel hugely um, privileged to sort of move from, uh, from England to Australia and to get to see um, such diversity and such difference. And do you think that has really impacted you both moving from a public school to a, a, um, an independent school to then moving overseas to, to Hong Kong? How, how has that impacted your approach to education? It left me seeing that I think I'll say people look at difference, diversity, either as something to be excited about as a strength in a community or something perhaps to be wary of yeah. and a little bit scared of. And you can actually feel both, I suppose. Uh, but I just, every time I encountered diversity, new ideas, new people, new ways of doing things, I was just really excited. Yeah. And it just felt, I felt alive. And I think that's why I kept pushing to try a new experience after growing up, not uh, sheltered is too strong of a word, but I, it was a, it was a middle-class family in a suburb uh, outside of Boston. And that's, I had a very privileged upbringing. My parents worked hard and I felt safe and fortunate. Uh, and so being able to experience and, and bump up against people who think differently, who live differently, was just incredibly exciting and important for my own growth. Yeah. Um, and it's certainly impacted how I view education. Yeah. Um, not just because I think people grow personally and academically, the more they're around diverse ideas and experiences. Yeah. Um, but it's also just more enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. So absolutely. It's a through line in my life. Great. And, and how, um, how's being a dad changed you and how do you begin to then provide those experiences for your child? I think I'm just realizing how 
becoming a dad is, is changing me. I'm working out. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's plenty of cliches that I'm, I understand why they're cliches now. Um, I, I'm terrified at times just for things that are very much outside of my control. Yeah. I'm completely enamored and finding a capacity for love. I, I had hypothetically known was supposed to come, but now feeling it is, is overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that drew me to teaching that I see this parallel in being a parent is the opportunity to relive and see and experience aspects of life that I've already gone through in yeah. earlier stages of, of my experience through the eyes of my students, or in this case, now my child. Yeah. And it's just a, an incredible thing to, to help someone explore something in school and be a tiny part of that, but more on the mentor side than on the student side. Yeah. And, but now as, as a, a father, just uh, seeing the personality emerge and realize he's gonna be his own person and I get to help nudge him just like I used to my students to, to you know, go on a good path, but uh, I have to have faith and, um, and just uh, and, and embrace just like I would teaching, but um, I think it's just maybe a little bit harder and more intense as, as a dad, yeah. Yeah, I, I look, I don't have any answers to these questions I'm asking you. I the same. <laughs> There's, okay, that's good to know. I, uh, I, yeah, I thought I didn't know what I was doing when my daughter was a year and a half. And now I'm convinced that she's, when, now that she's four and a half, I still, it just gets bigger and it just gets wider. I find myself crying at Disney movies and sunsets and like all of, all of this stuff. I've become that person that I, I never thought I would become and it's sort of this I guess this beautiful tension of trying to allow my daughter to experience the joy and the wonder of life but also to teach you this resilience because life is not always kind um it's terrifying yeah I'd say also it's the experience has left me with more humility yeah and a greater appreciation for my parents without question and what you're saying where you're not having it fully figured out if, if ever I can still remember at that moment when I was younger when I'm like oh my parents maybe you actually don't have it a hundred percent figured out yeah yeah and that was a little scary as a kid you know they were just they were working hard trying to sort it out themselves and being there now myself wow feeling all the emotions yeah yeah oh, I, I feel myself getting so uh a lot more interested in political and social issues than I ever have been. I mean, our mm. political climate in Australia is quite, um, quite timid or sorry, tame. Maybe that's a better word. Um, and, um, but I'm really interested in that. I'm interested in policy. I'm interested in uh, governance. And, and I always, um, I, I guess I always was interested, but I'm starting to think about what is the world that my daughter's are currently living in like i don't know if that's the same for you if you have taken more of a keen interest in some of those more long-term policies and procedures and yeah without question it's yeah. uh, it, it just feels far uh well i thought they were important and i appreciated yeah. trying to follow them and be involved they just feel more weighty yeah. now knowing that they're not only going to affect me but again this person i'm half terrified and half joyful thinking yeah. about yeah. Oh, it, it, I um, my wife was recently away uh, for work, and she got back, and I, uh, I and I loved. I spent 
three or four days looking after our girls, not babysitting because they're my kids. I don't think I should get special points for just looking after the things that I helped create. But when she came through the door, I, I've never been more committed to our relationship in my life. And I just thought, thank you for everything that you do. This is a partnership like no other. And my, my parents were both uh, single parents. And I just wonder, um, I couldn't imagine how difficult that would be to raise these little people on your own but uh look we're getting very philosophical uh for uh for this time of the evening for you but uh mike i was just wondering um you mentioned that kind of transition outside of a uh, classroom into the amazing work that you do now with give thanks but do you um do you miss being in the classroom uh is it was it was that a difficult transition to make and, and what what was going through your mind at that time uh terribly i i, I miss it on a daily basis yeah, the right. further you get from the classroom the, the less you feel those relationships. And for me, at least a huge part of the meaning behind why I care and I'm so passionate about education um, and letting go and stepping away mm. so I could pursue a new opportunity and grow in a new way yeah. was really hard. I think in education, so often teachers are pushed to put themselves second. Mm. Uh, and yet, we need to grow uh, just like our students. And so there are appropriate times and places to, to be open, to reflect and to think about you know, oneself and their own career because I feel while I've had a very direct impact on those I taught in ways that I'll always hold dear, I'm now able to have an impact on other educators and through them now, students in ways that I, I couldn't have had before. So I miss it on a daily basis. And I'm still grateful that I took the chance to grow in this way professionally. So when someone asks, what do you do? How do you respond? And, and, and what is, for those that are not aware, what is uh, Give Thanks all about? I tell them I run a nonprofit that I co-founded, is in layman's terms as best I can. Uh, and I tell them that the nonprofit Give Thanks supports uh, student well-being and social emotional skills uh, using gratitude. I say, you know, whether you're a parent or you're a brand new educator or a veteran, veteran educator, uh, so much of life is recognizing your students or your child um, doing pro-social things. You know, thank you for letting your brother go first when I know you really want it. That must have been really hard for you. Thank you for the patience. Hey, thank you for going first in group. Everyone was terrified, but you took that chance. And like, that was courageous of you. And that made everything go better. I could see the relief on their faces. So when you catch your child or you're catching a student doing something great, gratitude is this amazing universal way to, to recognize those things in action. And so I found it was a bit of a core piece of, of my own success in education to creating a safe and inclusive classroom. And it turned out, pursuing this as an idea that it could be used across a school to make culture very visible and to, to build inclusivity um, and well-being and connection, it started to take off. Um, and and uh, so I tell people, I, I run this wonderful nonprofit that helps schools build these inclusive communities with well-being and connection and uh, social emotional skills at the, the core that we know it creates that fertile ground for, for both personal and academic growth. What I realized, though, for a lot of my students in my ninth grade classroom, they came in on average with fifth grade math skills, some as far back as second or third grade math skills. 
And I, I could spend two, three, four times the amount of time with them. But what I realized and I started doing was I ended up spending almost half my time on these social emotional pieces, helping them feel safe, helping them feel a sense of belonging and a willingness to have a growth mindset. Uh, because I realized that those were absolutely critical, necessary drivers to go along with the extra effort to help yeah. them accelerate their learning. And at the end of the day, if you don't feel you belong, you don't care about the Pythagorean theorem. If you don't feel seen and appreciated as a human, and I'm not talking just the students, the faculty, the staff, adults in society, yeah. you, know, you don't feel like you want to necessarily give it your all or, or be a part of whether it's work or, or your community. And so it's just not a small thing. So in a word, belonging, we're, we're human, we're social creatures, and we, we need to feel a sense of belonging and value. Yeah. Otherwise, the social endeavor that is education is, is never going to reach its full potential for both the student and the community they're a part of. So uh, I stepped away from my math classroom with a few lessons I thought I learned to try and help schools create that inclusive community where everyone had a sense of belonging so they could then reach both their personal and academic potential. Yeah. So what do you think then are, or, is the, or are the essential roles of schools? Um, is it purely academic? Is it social, emotional? Is it well-being? Is it a bit of both? What do you think our main goal is as educators or what should it be? Wow, that's a, that's a very, very deep question. It's a whole uh, podcast in itself. Right it there. is indeed. It's a book. It's an anthology. Uh, my head went to Martin Luther King. He, he talked about education without character being not worthless, but certainly not as effective, not as, um, as useful. A character without education could even do great harm. Uh, sorry, character. Sorry, education without character. Yeah. And so he basically felt that, you know, morality, ethics, character were inseparable from learning math, reading, writing, science. Um, and that comes to mind and it's something I, I believe deeply, I think. Anytime you gather a group of humans together, whether it's multiple screens or in the same physical space, um, you have opportunities to learn in ways that you don't by yourself. Yeah. Um, but the, the mediating, how we navigate the S in SEL, the social, if you will, or whatever language we want to use, um, it's, it's important that we name, I think, that this is happening. Uh, families play a critical role. They values and, and how uh, children are brought up. That is absolutely the purview of the parents. But to say that schools shouldn't or don't play that role in helping to present character and, and morality and social emotional skills and making that visible for people to learn so we can be not just an effective learning community, but an effective society. Yeah. I absolutely think schools have to play that role. Yeah. And I think you'd have plenty of people to push back on that. Hmm. Um, but I, I think particularly, at least in this country at this time, we're having a moment where democracy itself is, is feeling stressed and um, discussions of the role of school and the degree to which we can engage and how we interact with one another and what agreements we have and how we, how we disagree and all these things, they need to be front and center, I feel. Uh, otherwise, um, it may be quite difficult to steer ourselves through this moment. Yeah. So, Mike, was there a teacher that uh, had a positive impact in your life when you were at school? And um, why was that so? Absolutely. The first to come to mind of many, um, was in seventh grade. His name was Mr. Killalay. 
And I can remember because he meant so much to me because when I entered his class, he said very clearly, you're going to write a it was history class, um, a, a research paper uh, basically every week. And I had never written more than more or less three, three paragraphs in an essay. I thought it was simply impossible that anyone could have those expectations. There's no, this just wasn't gonna happen. I wasn't gonna meet them. And he was just no nonsense about it and did what it took to, to help support me and the others. And it was one of those few moments was in life when I had this epiphany that, wow, someone can have these incredibly high expectations, help you see that you can meet them and then be there for you and not give up on you. And that was a piece I've carried with me into my own uh, uh, professional experience in education. Yeah, um, it, it really, really blew me away. And, uh, it was terribly difficult and I did not like him in the beginning, let me tell you. Um, but I'm telling you his name right now, Mr. Killalay, because uh, having high expectations uniformly for people and then helping them meet them with whatever they need really meant something to me when that happened. Mm. Yeah, I always love hearing about um, people's experiences with the teachers. Um, sadly, they're not always positive. Uh, but um, I, I had the privilege of interviewing uh, my year three teacher, Mrs. Taylor Jones. Um, uh, I went to a, a tiny rural school in the middle of England. Mm. And um, I, to be honest, I don't remember what she taught me that entire year. I don't remember if it was how to read the circumference of a rectangle. I, I had no idea, but I remembered how she made me feel when I walked into her classroom. And I'm sure she did that for every single person in that class. Um, but I felt heard and I felt valued and I felt as if she saw me for who I was, but yet she had some of the most incredibly high expectations for my seven-year-old little self that I'd ever experienced. And um, yeah, do you remember what Mr. Killale actually taught you? You know, if, yes, a couple, I can remember a couple yeah. of just awful papers I had to write, yeah. one on the, like the, the Chinese revolution. I, I can remember that one in particular and building index cards to help write this yeah. paper and using that method to organize myself. It's funny how that one sticks with me or building a model of a hydroelectric plant. I can't tell you why they're popping into my head right now. What's fascinating about what you said though, yeah, and it goes back to your previous point, you know, what are the point of schools? When my students thank me, when I was directly in front of them in the classroom, nobody said thank you for helping me understand the Pythagorean mm -hmm. theorem. It was mainly what you're sharing. We remember the feelings, the thoughts of how we were made to feel, how we were valued, how we felt connected, the experiences we had. We can likely look up or relearn some of those things we had to study at that time. You can't look up and relearn uh, you know, a year three teacher making you feel that way or a seventh grade history teacher making me believe in myself that in, to do something that I never thought was possible. Uh, and I think it's why I feel so gratified doing the work I'm doing now, because facilitating meaningful connection and belonging and a sense of identifying one's strengths, uh, you know, and social skills, it, I hope that people carry those forward indefinitely yeah. in life yeah. in ways that a, a topic or something yeah. they might study academically, they may not. Yeah. Have you ever had a chance to uh, thank Mr. Killalay? I did. I stumbled across him once many years later. I believe I was home from college and I, I got that chance. And I know not everybody does. And 
I will say, while I'm not the biggest social media user, one of my favorite aspects of it is how it has facilitated people reaching far back out of the past mm. to, to reconnect or to finally express certain things to educators um, or just as an educator to see your students uh, succeed. You know, I'm a, like, on LinkedIn, I'm associated with students I've taught because mm -hmm. you know, it was a school I taught at, they attended it, so they put in their profile. And so I see some of my former students becoming this or that, and it's just, it is so gratifying. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I had that opportunity, which was wonderful. And I, I wish more people yeah. that same experience. I remember when I um, I saw Mrs. Taylor Jones for the first time in probably oh, oh maybe not probably thirty years. I didn't know what to do. I think I just hugged her, and it was this awkward. <laughs> you don't hug a teacher like it's a, not as a grown man. It was just awkward right. and weird, and she was so lovely. But I I still can't call her Beth, which is her first name. I still have to call her Mrs. Taylor Jones, and it's amazing even now the uh, the influence and the and the power that teachers have over our lives. Um, she said to me, I remember something, something about one of the things that I did in her class and it meant so much to me. Um, and yet this is a, someone who I haven't seen in 30 years. It was really amazing to think about that power and also the importance of what we say to our students and the influence that we have on their lives. Um, Mike, I was just wondering, um, we've talked a lot about gratitude and then I'm gonna go back and have a, a, a bit of a chat about give thanks and how we actually use it to build or can use it to build student and staff wellbeing. But I'm just wondering about some of your own practices. Um, how do you practice gratitude in your own life? Are you a, a journaler? Do you sit down and, I don't know, write responses to things? Do you have cue cards? How do you foster that sense of gratitude in your life? I am a, a note writer, a letter writer. Okay. A note is more accurate, a note writer. And um, someone who also enjoys reflection, a routine of reflection. I enjoy before I fall asleep each night, just doing a three good things reflection. Right. Whatever's happening, what are three good things that happened today? Yep. And it builds a sense of peace. It helps me sleep better. And it also builds a little resilience that yeah. this, this, and this could be very hard. And this, this, and this, right. A little perspective are still, are still great. Yeah. Um, so I love that doing that. Um, and, and I say a note writer because I think there's something wonderful about having something tangible mm. to touch. Like maybe you put it up on a little board or maybe you just, you hold it. And I, um, my first year teaching back many years ago, 2000, 2001, a mentor of mine gave me this little purple folder and I have it here somewhere if I search for it and said, just put every thank you note you ever receive from a colleague, a student, a parent in here and you'll need to open it from time to time. And she was right. And a few years ago, I, I did open it at the end of school one day and I, I started moving my notes around on my desk for some reason, by what I thought were themes. Wow. And what was so interesting was, you know, holding that note from years ago, opening up, seeing that person's name. It's not that an email isn't effective. It is. It's just knowing they wrote it, they touched that piece of paper. I remember yeah. that relationship really meant something to me. Yeah. And then seeing these informal piles, almost like forming a little bar graph, mm. I started seeing things I didn't, I didn't realize about myself. 
people thought of me as a patient person, for example. And I often taught like my hair was on fire and I did not feel like I had a ton of patience. Yeah. But they said what I did to lead them to thank me for wow. being patient. And I started going, oh, so when I do this, I had this impact on others. And then I started wondering, well, it'd be pretty good if kids had that experience too. And that's part of the genesis of this project. I just like though, knowing that someone wrote this, someone touched it, someone put the time into it, someone signed it. And it's almost like a, a touchstone back to that relationship and that feeling I had with that person. So I like the notes as a practice. I love that. And um, what are, what were three things from yesterday that you were grateful for? Three things from yesterday I was grateful for was my son who has now learned to tell me no and wag a finger at me uh, because he's- It only gets worse, I'm just saying. That's what I'm told. He's keeping yeah. me in check. But it was, it was so deeply funny and I was stressed at the time because um, uh, we, had, we had woken up to find some of our food had been eaten, I'm assuming by a mouse or two or three in our house for new homeowners. So that's a new experience. And it's very stressed out. My wife was stressed out. And so to have our son basically just bring us back down to earth and be like, look, it's just, you know, you know, for you waking me up, shame, shame, shame. No, no, no. Shaking the finger was pretty, pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, so I, I appreciated that. Um, and my mind immediately went to my wife because it's, it's so interesting navigating life. And you talked a little bit about this with your partner, navigating things as they get older now with somebody, whether it's some mice in your house or something very joyful or very, very sad. I'm so grateful to have someone who's a partner, an actual partner to navigate those things with. And so this was a tiny thing, um, but having her at my side was much better than doing this alone. Yeah. Uh, and I think um, it was the last thing I, I thought of. We didn't get much sleep last night. Uh, You're the, doing really well. You're doing really I'm well. well. I'm glad to hear that. I. The, the other thing was, um, was this effort everybody made. My, my wife and I, we got, we got married two years ago, but we canceled our wedding because yeah. global pandemic. And so it was just her and I two years ago standing on this bluff, looking out over the Golden Gate Bridge. It was gorgeous with a friend of ours standing six feet away and doing the, the officiating. Um, but we decided we still wanted our two families to meet. And everyone made this, incredible effort to come out two years later and to to just meet up and, and be joyful and and to help knit our family together and I know that's not a small thing so making that effort meant the world to me and I was was deeply grateful for it and I was uh, writing a thank you note which is why that was the third thing that came to mind yeah that's really that's really beautiful and really lovely and I think it's it, it's good to to pause and um, just have a think about what we are grateful for and Another personal question, then I promise we will move on to the amazing work that you're doing with Give Thanks. Um, if uh, your wife was here uh, on the Zoom call, what do you think she would say uh, about you? What would she say about me? I mean, it's, I know it's very easy to, uh, for me, it's very easy for me to put a certain, and I'm not saying you're doing this in any, in any means, but... I think quite often the truth uh, comes out when we speak to the people that live with us. I think one of the reasons I love her so much is because I don't spend any energy being something other than myself with her. 
Love that. The good, the bad, the frustrating, all of it. And I think she would say that she appreciates seeing me grow to be a dad. That's something she's told me has brought her joy and a lot of comfort um, as we figure this out, this whole parenthood thing. I think she would say, I need to leave the last piece of chocolate for her, which I'm not good about doing. Um, yeah. And that's um, finding, finding balance between work and life will, will always be a struggle and it's something yeah. to be mindful for. I think she, she keeps me righted and anchored. Um, and it's those people in your life who can gently point those things out, but candidly that help you continue growing and trying to be the person you yeah. want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so back to give thanks. Um, how does the platform actually build student and staff well-being? Uh, what is it, what is it, is its point of uniqueness? So the, the program has three pieces. It has uh, some curricular practices, so some lessons and some practices you can do anytime in any order, integrate right into whatever you're already doing in class. Um, it has some software that just makes it very easy to thank interpersonally and also to reflect personally when you're practicing gratitude. It adds some coherence, seeing all those thank you notes in one place. And it makes it very safe, which I'll talk about in a moment. Yeah. So besides the, the practices and the software, it also has just some very um, quick and easy uh, you know, professional learning opportunities to, to get a community up and running. And the way it works, the, the change theory is really simple. Um, and I, I alluded to it earlier. If you as a community are clear what you value and care about developing in people with respect to social emotional skills and values, character, and then you give people an opportunity to recognize others for these things and then be recognized for them. Yeah. You have an amazing opportunity to make your culture visible. Mm. And gratitude is a virtue if you wanna talk about this in the language of character. Um, you could talk about social emotional, we could talk about non-cognitive, but going the character out for a moment, it's also a parent virtue because you can use it to recognize other virtues, other things in action. And quite simply, again, teacher or parent, uh, catching someone doing something good, recognizing them for it, and saying thank you as though we recognize them is a very natural way to reinforce things. But you don't just reinforce the thing you're catching them doing, perhaps being a good listener or being kind, but you're also then reinforcing your relationship with them. Because if I thank you for taking the time to hear my story and to make me feel seen and literally heard what you are doing, um, I'm valuing you. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying, you know, you've benefited me and I wanna make sure you know that and I value you. Yeah. And research is pretty straightforward on this. When people value others, they wanna be friends with them. They wanna feel connected to them. And so our relationship gets a bit stronger and um, our well-being, we're less stressed mm. and we feel more positive. So um, that's, that's the entire change theory behind give thanks. When you recognize someone for something, you reinforce that skill, that behavior, that thing, but you also reinforce your relationship and your sense of well-being. Mm. And whether it's students or staff, it's very easy to integrate that into the learning experience. There's so many natural places we do this. Uh, appreciations, process checks, 
reflections. And I'm not just talking students, right? At the staff meeting, at the end of the meeting, hey, how did things go? You know, what are some people we might want to thank for ways that helped make the work go well today? There's so many natural places to just integrate this. And what's fascinating about it, though, is, and I could talk your ear off about it, gratitude is purely strength-based. So it's a da, 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 hold your criti critical piece. That's not what we're talking about here. Just We're just talking the strengths piece. And it's very accessible, particularly when there's uh, a written component, which the software provides. So everybody gets to participate, not just those three lovely students or faculty members who always put their hand up with enthusiasm. Um, and it's amazing when you provide a strengths-based and equitable way to access this to help you navigate social identities and stresses. Yeah. Um, what happens? People connect and you see individually everything you know you ever received sorted by reason, you start to generate incredible self-awareness yeah. and social awareness. But then when you start to look at this across the school, wow, you can see impact yeah. of, of culture in action that oftentimes learning communities just wait for the end of the year survey to help try and make visible. So that's yeah. the change theory. Thanking reinforces skills and relationships. And when it becomes a cultural practice, it makes culture visible and actionable in schools. Yeah, and you've got some uh, pretty serious data on this. I mean, there's a research paper, um, which is on your website, which we'll put links to, which is mm -hmm. the benefits of using Give Thanks. Um, and, and what were some of, some of those more concrete findings? Because in schools, we love to measure things. We love to put things in graphs. We love to do all of that stuff. What were some of the concrete findings that you found in that particular um, uh, research paper? What was gratifying about that research paper, the short answer is we saw participants, their, um, their positivity, their sense of belonging and connection, and their relationship skills all improve significantly. And by that, I mean also statistically significantly. And then also their stress, anxiety, depression, and negativity mm. go down significantly. And that was a really big deal. This was done in high schools. This was a high potential, but very high need. Uh, community in the, the Oakland East Bay here uh, near San Francisco. And so to build and design this work with students who yeah. historically, at least in this country, had very marginalized experiences with education, to center them in building this, and then to test and see how it would serve them and to see those um, emotional health changes and the sense of relationship skill development uh, was very gratifying. And um, I, I so appreciate uh, California State University Dominguez Hills for, for leading that research uh, study to to, ver you know, to validate the work and the approach. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's such a, it's a really insightful read. Um, and it, it's great to see that, um, like I said, that there are some really concrete um, uh, findings um, and also well-being is not something which is optional, it's something that is absolutely central, should be central to the work that we do um, in schools and, and considering that, um, what do you think this, this ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has taught us about the importance of the roles that schools play and also how central wellbeing is? I'm very aware that you're talking from a, a US centric point of view, but what are mm -hmm. some of your, your uh, views on that? We're not an old organization. We're just really just four years old now. And so yeah. you just kind of, you know, going from crawling to sort of toddling and all of a sudden, bam, the pandemic came in was a rather unique experience building yeah. an organization. And what was remarkable is we had a bunch of schools begin using our program as the pandemic 
um, took off and in a word disconnected. They felt the students and the educators felt so disconnected, um, literally not being able to be in the same physical space, um, but navigating trauma difficulty in ways um, they hadn't anticipated. It was very, very, very difficult. And um, I would say worldwide, certainly in the US, those negative impacts didn't fall equitably. Communities that were already disproportionately affected, struggling, trying to, to create community and good learning opportunities, um, struggled even more. Uh, and, and so the big learning we had was creating a sense of community where people feel connected and supported and to have their emotional health attended to wasn't a nice to have. Mm. It was a have to have. Yeah. It's an and, not an or. And I would say education is cyclical historically and people care a great deal about testing when testing is paramount and you know math and, and, and English, at least in the States, is always those test scores. They matter, matter, matter. And yet it needs to be an and not just for the students, but also the staff, the emotional health. Yeah. Uh, because we know they, you want better academic outcomes. You want to make sure people have emotional health and connection yeah. and pro-social skills. Um, it's just often, and this is shifting, I, I feel grateful for um, that people look at it as an aura, whether it's a time issue, whether it's a, a money issue. Um, but the pandemic, I think, put an exclamation to say this is not a nice to have we have to attend to student and staff emotional health yeah. not just for academic outcomes but for personal and community outcomes we care about yeah and are you uh confident that we will continue on this trajectory or do you think that we will um maybe jump back into old habits if i'm being honest i think some will continue and some will regress yeah. And I say that because education too often is um, feast and famine, depending on where you are in this country, your zip code, you know, where you, you grow up determines to a large part your, your educational attainment and resources you have, educators you have access to, uh, priorities at the, the school, the community, the state, the national level. There's so much variance, at least in this country, that I absolutely think um, there will be a regression. And I, I say that because I, I say, unfortunately, I see entire states you know, not even wanting to acknowledge the expression social emotional learning. They view that as detrimental for various reasons that we could have multiple podcasts on. Um, others are overly focused on you know, uh, learning loss. And without question, there's learning loss. What about well-being loss? And it's, uh, mm. I, I unfortunately think it's gonna widen both the academic and the emotional achievement gap before or until there's a level of awareness and a reckoning to make this a, a bigger policy and more uniform push yeah. to make it a non-negotiable, not a nice to have. Yeah, absolutely. What, um, fast forward to, when you retire, whatever that looks like, uh, what do you uh, hope that your legacy would have been in this space? I hope my legacy will be that, not that I had my work present in you know, 
thousands of schools or anything like that. I think I would just like to see that I contributed to the field to get people to think about you know, how they can create emotional health and connection and inclusion in new ways, perhaps that they hadn't thought about. Yeah, certainly I, I had deep in, impact and and outcomes, and I, I helped support the the work already happening in communities in in many many schools around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and um, starting my career teaching internationally, and now seeing give thanks in uh, in China, in Australia, in New Zealand, in South Africa, in Costa Rica, that, and certainly in the United States, that means a lot to me. And so I hope I can contribute to the field a little bit, get people to think a little differently. Yeah. And a whole lot of people, both students and staff, feel a little bit more self-aware of their strengths, feel a little more connected, a little healthier, mm. because they happen to encounter my program. Fantastic. Well, I think you are well uh, on track to achieve that goal. Um, and when I write my top three things I'm grateful for today, uh, this conversation will be uh, on the list. So I'm hugely, hugely grateful. And thank you for your, um, uh, your determination and your perseverance and your bravery to um, pursue um, something such as this. And it's incredibly wonderful to see the work that you're doing with Give Thanks. And um, it's a hugely important space. So thank you for what you're doing. Um, yeah, hugely grateful. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we can continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.